Hey everyone, this is Risky Business and I'm Patrick Gray and joining me as always is Adam Boileau. G'day Adam. Why hello there. Hey hey, and uh, yeah we'll get to the news in just a moment and then it'll be time for this week's sponsor interview with Thinkst Canary's CTO Marco Slaviero. And uh, Thinkst has published its awesome quarterly security research roundup which is called uh, Thinkstscapes and Marco will be along a little bit later on to talk about a couple of interesting items that they highlighted in the quarterly report. Uh, One deals with large language model indirect prompt injection which is um, it's going to be a problem Uh, and we also talk through uh, their latest Canary release which includes stuff like tail scale support and a whole bunch of new Canary uh, personas Uh, that is coming up later but uh, Adam it is of course time to jump into the news now and first up I've got to correct something I said last week and uh, you know the best thing about doing this job the absolute best thing is every time you make a mistake you get 600 people telling you about it. It's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. Of course, last week I was talking about how, you know, we, we're stingy and have a free uh, free Slack instance for our, um, you know, internal comms. There's like 12 people in our Slack. And uh, I said that I liked it, how the messages uh, uh, were not retained uh, by Slack and just disappeared. Well, it turns out the messages are, of course, uh, retained in some giant blob of storage deep in the gubbins of Slack headquarters. And, uh, you know, if I were to upgrade our account to a paid one, those messages would come back to haunt us like the ghosts of Christmas past. <laughs> that's, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Well, I guess I guess disk is cheap. I, I'm probably not going to upgrade to a paid account just so I get to nuke those messages, to be honest, because <laughs> there's nothing really that controversial in our Slack messages. And uh, yeah. So anyway, sorry about the uh, sorry about the mistake there, everyone. Uh, of course, Slack does retain your messages, but they will not be visible to you uh, as a stingy free tier customer like us. <laughs> <laughs> but look, let's get into the rest of the news now, mate. And Russia is having a tanty uh, because apparently all of Russia's iPhones got owned by the NSA in a secret plot in which Apple was cooperating, and blah, according to the FSB, anyway. According to the FSB, yes. I guess what we do know is that there has been quite a lot of iPhones hacked uh, in Russia for quite some time. Yes. Uh, Kaspersky spotted some of their iPhones beaconing out over the office Wi-Fi, started digging, uh, and sure enough, it led to nation-state compromise of their phones uh, and you know, evidence going back to, I think, what, like 2019, they said, um, from you know presumably the American uh, intelligence people uh, up in Russian iPhones, which kind of seems like their job to me um and the i FSB- mean the scale the scale of it i if if what fsb is saying is correct i mean to get up in thousands of iphones at once i mean that's pretty that's some pretty large scale espionaging yeah which you know that's kind of what they're resourced and funded for so you know not super surprised and i guess you know some validation for all of the people uh, who get a little bit sus about having conversations you know, around their phones, you know, when you're sitting in a, sitting in a meeting and everyone glances and there's like, mm, let's have that conversation later uh, when my phone is not present. Look, what I found interesting about this uh, is the way that Russia kind of handled this. There's a bit of mimicry here, right? Which is a, kind of like a coordinated release of, of a private sector report out of Kaspersky with a press release from FSB and saying, oh, look, you know, it's, it's Apple cooperating with the NSA and this is uh, all terrible, terrible stuff. So... You know, I just I just find it interesting that you know chi- we've seen China kind of do this as well, um, doing these big releases saying, "Oh, look at the Americans, so irresponsible for doing you know what looks to be fairly legitimate intelligence gathering," but they do these big reports and you know kick it out there and you know dox Rob Joyce as head of TAO, <laughs> which is uh, always gets a chuckle. But 
Yeah, it just seems that like everyone's mimicking the Americans now by doing these sort of public attributions with a combination of, you know, state agency uh, press releases and private sector cooperation. Yeah, and I guess, you know, they're trying to make a point somewhat, but it's kind of, you know, I suppose like Apple, for Apple's part, they came out very sternly said, no, we don't cooperate with government and we don't put backdoors in our stuff and we never will, which is kind of what you'd expect from them. Uh, And, you know, you turn around and look at the same thing with, Huawei or some of the Chinese manufacturers where, you know, we haven't, you know, obviously they deny it as well, as Mm. they do, um, but, you know, those denials feel a little perhaps less concrete than uh, than what we get at Apple. But, I mean, you know, who knows in in this crazy world, but the idea that you can't trust equipment that comes from, you know, companies that, you know, are part of your enemy, I mean, that's still good advice, even if we don't have specifics, you know. Yeah, you know, we we spoke about this in early April that Russian authorities were already telling people who worked in the the president's office, you need to dump your iPhones, right? So there's been a bit of a government-wide push to get rid of iPhones, uh, get iPhones out of the hands of people who hold valuable intelligence in Russia. And I guess this is a bit of an insight into why. It makes makes me wonder how long the Russians kind of knew this was happening. So uh, when we spoke about this uh, in Canberra, you know, we mentioned that uh, they, they were being forced to ditch iPhones. A, a Finnish gentleman came up to me um, after we'd finished recording and said, oh, they're using Sailfish, right? So the Russians are actually using Sailfish OS, which is a Finnish, you know, uh, secure operating system for mobiles. I did look into it after then, and it looks like the Russian build of Sailfish is called Aurora, and it did actually split off from the Finnish group quite a while ago um and now aurora is a fully fledged like russian domestic uh uh, mobile operating system with a fancy website and everything that you and i have have looked over today adam and um i mean uh, this is something that we've said on the show before but if you're going to use an entirely homegrown technology that is not used in the west then do you think they realize how wildly this changes the vulnerabilities equities process um, to the advantage of organizations like the NSA, because if they find a catastrophic bug in this Aurora operating system, they do not have to give it to the vendor and they will not give it to the vendor. And it becomes basically a bug that they, you know, they can just freely use. Right. So this is one of the challenges when you go to a domestic uh, uh, technology. And again, we spoke about this in in early April like the whole issue for the Russians is like, what technology can you trust, right? And, yeah, and absolutely, you, yeah. th- th- very little. Yeah, exactly. And, and all up and down the ecosystem, right? I mean, sure, it's one thing to have your own mobile operating system, but you've still got to run it on some hardware. That hardware still has components. And, you know, I guess they can't have Qualcomm chips anymore, but, you know, the equivalents out of China. At that point, you know, you're running, yeah, much like we are, a whole bunch of Chinese processes on your things, right? There's firmware, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Um, like, it's really hard to build a robust, entirely independent ecosystem. And then, as you say, it changes the vulnerabilities, equities, dynamics. I mean, can you imagine what NSA could do if they didn't have to worry about that kind of thing? You know, it's just, yeah, it changes it. And I don't know that there is a good answer to this problem in either direction, you know? Now, moving on to more sort of, uh, you know, APT skullduggery. And uh, last week, you and I spoke about this, um, you know, alleged... Uh, Chinese APT pre-positioning inside uh, inside critical infrastructure, and we said, look, you know, how is it how is it possible to to really know that this is pre-positioning and not just typical espionage activity? Tom Uren, our colleague, uh, did a write up last week on this whole thing, 
And, you know, he made some good points, right? Which is the fact that the Five Eyes intelligence agencies are coming out and saying that they agree with Microsoft's assessment. Like he's got a quote in there from from uh, Rob Joyce that he gave to another outlet saying, we agree with Microsoft's assessment. The fact that they're actually pumping out their own uh, material on this would suggest that perhaps the, you know, NSA in this case has some insight into why China's doing what it's doing because it doesn't just have to infer a an attacker's intent uh, by doing incident response, right? Like they have other intelligence and, you know, there are indications that they they really think this is what China's up to and maybe we need to, to take this seriously. Yeah, no, that's it's kind of an interesting update to the story because I read through Tom's piece and it, he makes a pretty convincing argument, you know, of the kinds of information they're digging up in terms of the layout of networks and, and all of the other kind of reconnaissance that you would need to do to be able to have actions on your on your targets uh, you know beyond the regular you know kind of systems information like actual things that are relevant to the you know the infrastructure in question so like that's compelling and certainly the nsa putting its weight behind it um and agreeing with microsoft you know it's kind of convincing i guess um and it's what you there's only one fly in the ointment for this whole thing everybody seems to think it's pre-positioning except for secure works so I think it's like SecureWorks was the one that went across, uh, cut against the grain and kind of raised some doubt. But everyone else seems to be on the same page that this is pre-positioning for possible future destructive attacks, right? Uh, yeah, and I mean, certainly the, you know, the idea of Guam's importance and the you know, communications in and out of there and all those sorts of things like that, you know, it makes sense from a strategic perspective. But yeah, I guess you know, this is one of the problems with being on the outside, right? Not, not uh, being in the middle of the class world with access to all of the good intel. But, yeah, we just kind of have to take their words for it, I guess, that it seems believable to me. Yeah, well, they've also been aware of this group for a while, which makes me wonder what sort of investigations into this group the intelligence right, community yeah. might have done that we're not privy to, right? Like, So it's very easy for us to sit here and go, well, you know, judging from the attacker's uh, behaviour on target, like it's not possible to prove what they're trying to do. But we don't know what NSA has done to try to figure out what they're up yeah. to. Yeah, they're reading, reading the PowerPoint presentations out of the SharePoint and, uh, you know, can yeah. see everybody's <laughs> objectives for the quarter or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, now, switching it up a bit, and the Estonian president says that the International Criminal Court should pursue people for committing uh, war crimes or crimes against humanity in cyberspace. And you think, so this was, these were remarks delivered at an event. And you think, well, that's pretty dumb. Come on. But then you look at our next item that we got here, Adam, which is that, you know, DDoS attacks against emergency services in Ukraine tend to coincide with bombings. Right. So they're actually trying to prohibit, you know, stop things like ambulances and fire services being able to respond to, to bombing campaigns. Uh, and you just think, well, that seems pretty war crimey, actually. Like that seems worthy of the Hague. If, if you are commanding, you know, a unit to DDoS an ambulance service after a bombing run, um, you know, maybe you should be in the dock at the Hague. I think there's a solid case there. Yeah, that that was my emotional roller coaster reading this in the in the news list this morning, and you know the data that we're looking at in particular, this came from uh, Cloudflare's Project Galileo, which provides you know DDoS filtering, web application firewalling, and stuff in front of public interest uh, organizations. Uh, so they've got you know data about the timing of these attacks, and you know the idea that you would do that, like that you would sit there and ask people to you know, deny service to ambulances after like that very does sound pretty war crimey to me too. So, you know, the, the, you know, we've got the data there. Uh, and mm. so, 
Yeah, I mean, and look, to be clear, the president of Estonia was not talking specifically about, uh, uh, you know, about these events. It's just that they these two news items happened to crop up in this week. I guess the point is that it is possible to commit war crimes over yes. the internet by doing yeah. cyber things, right? And it's 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 something that I guess is is just we maybe would have questioned that five years ago, but now that we've seen a conflict in which cyber has been a feature, um, you know, you, you would certainly think that, yeah, maybe we're going to see people in the dock at the ICC for cyber war crimes. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the attacks on civilian infrastructure in general in Ukraine, you know, there's been you know, obviously physical attacks, but yeah, the attacks on power infrastructure and so on, like, it, you know, that's, you know, civilian infrastructure and, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope we do, I think. Yeah, no, I yeah. I mean, look, that stuff's complicated, right? Because sometimes, yeah, yes. sometimes uh, attacks on civilian infrastructure can be justified and are not war crimes, right? But uh, yeah, certainly, you know, a case of like DDoSing ambulances after a bombing campaign, that's, uh, yeah, that seems pretty, pretty war crimey. Uh, now, look, uh, Tom Uren is going to cover this in more detail uh, tomorrow. But the, uh, uh, the Australian Signals Directorate has uh, spilled on a bunch of operations to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation who did a one-hour program called, like, I think it was like The Secrets of Cyber or something like that. Um, but uh, the ABC journalist Andrew Probin was given a bunch of information on uh, various things that ASD has been up to. And it's really interesting, actually. So they spoke about their role in uh, investigating the Bali bombing in 2002 where basically the Indonesians provided the Australian Federal Police who were called very early, like the day of um, uh, the Indonesians called the AFP and said, can you help us please? And um, they said, absolutely. And they were given a whole bunch of cell phone uh, metadata, which even the AFP were like, this is too much data for us. So they then uh, looked to DSD for help uh, to do all of the network analysis, which would help unpick and, and discover these um, these Jamaris Lamia cells that perform the bombing and stuff. Just, just really interesting background and stuff they've never spoken about before. Uh, they also spoke about a campaign. Now, everyone got excited about this one, and I, I have new details on it, which I'm, I'm actually sad um, to share because the ABC reported, uh, this is the... This is the headline, how Australian cyber spies used Rick Rowling to disrupt Islamic State militants in Iraq. And if you read it, it looks like uh, DSD uh, actually, or ASD at that point, uh, were rickrolling the phones of ISIS militants. But unfortunately, that was just the name of the payload. I had uh, Tom actually get in touch with uh, ASD Public Affairs to check that because the way it was written and the way it was in the TV show, it just seemed like... I think this is just the name of the payload, and yeah, sadly it was, uh, but there's some some really interesting details on that operation, and also some details on, uh, so back when we were getting a lot of malicious SMS spam that was uh, linked to a malware camp- campaign involving government COVID-19 payments, uh, you would remember, Adam, that the ASD said that they'd taken some sort of action, um, but never said what the action was. Now we know that they bought the malware disrupted it somehow and then caused forum drama by saying, <laughs> why well, your malware doesn't work and basically tanked this group's business by like making the malware not work and then complaining as a verified like paid customer. So <laughs> lots of interesting details there. Yeah, there is lots of juicy, lots of juicy stuff in here. I've been reading about the mechanisms they were using um, in the uh, fight, the fight against ISIS, where they were coordinating with troops on the ground to you know, disable the cell phones being used by fighters, so that they would then fall back to using you know regular radios, which could then be 
you know, kind of direction found, position found, and then used for dropping bombs on them or, you know, attacks on the ground. Like, and watching that kind of flow forward in time as the ground assault uh, continued. Like, that was some pretty tight coordination. And that's, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. You know, see, and especially seeing that, like, across um, the country boundaries, like, that was, you know, ASD doing it. Um, in cooperation with you know the military forces on the ground in Iraq, like that's you know good coordination, solid kind of combined. Yeah, ISD ASD had someone at Cyber Command as well, so it was coordination between yeah Cyber Command ASD and um, and troops on the ground. Yeah, so pretty pretty impressive in that respect. Um, I'm a little disappointed about the Rickrolling. I was imagining the you know dulcet tones of Rick Astley blasting through uh, through Iraq, but uh, no, if that's just the, the, the name of the payload, then most disappointed. Um, surely a little bit of Rick Rick Astley wav blasting out the speakers would have been a good time, but uh, not to be, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So unfor- unfortunately, that's just the name of the payload. Um, so I'm very womp, sad womp. to report that. But uh, yeah, Tom will have some more <laughs> details in this week's newsletter and all of that stuff. But uh, yeah, it's just interesting to see ASD doing what the American agencies have done in terms of like being a little bit more public about some of the operations they've done. And, you know, talking about actions against groups like IS and uh, and also against uh, uh, criminal groups, you know, this is the stuff where it's a little bit safer to talk about than maybe some of the heavier heavier duty work that that ASD does, right? Yeah, and also like probably a legitimately good recruiting tool, right? When you see these kinds of actions and you go, okay, yeah, this is that looks know, like our, fun, <laughs> our, and you know, our uh, tools and talent and etc. are making an impact somewhere. That's the sort of thing that you know you take the pay cut and you go and work in a you know, secretive agency with all of the inconvenience that comes with that. And this is what you get in return. Like you have some actual, mm. you know, impact in the world. And that, yeah, I'm sure that feels good for a bunch of people. Now, look, let's talk about some bread and butter enterprise uh, cybersecurity news here, Adam. And uh, yeah, the MoveIt uh, file transfer appliance. There's an O'Day getting exploited. It's Clop. And uh, I am, I am, I am Jack's complete lack of surprise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we had heard a little bit about uh, this move at bug. I think we, last week it had just started the break, uh, and yeah, sure enough, Klopp had been on it for a while. It looked like it was exploited in the wild as zero day, and probably if you've got to move it, uh, you know, you got yourself owned a while ago, and it's not a case of patching it; it's a case of incident responding and dealing with uh, you know the fact that Klopp has your data and uh, will attempt to extort you for it. So. Yeah, it's, they haven't uh, done the extortion time. bit yet. They're just in the harvest. It's harvest season, and then everything goes off to market after harvest season. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's basically how they do it. Is this thing still O'Day, or have they patched it? I don't even know. I, I think MoveIt has now provided some patches uh, for it, but yeah, it was being exploited as zero day prior yeah. to, uh, and, and by the, the Klopp crew, uh, Lace Tempest, Microsoft calls them. Yeah, so exploited in the wild, uh, which is not great. Yeah, not great so funnily enough, Going back to early April, uh, you and I actually said, or it might have even been late March, you and I actually had a discussion. We don't often do this, right? We don't often like give advice to listeners because you know everybody's organization uh, is different and our audience are a bunch of grown-ups who make good decisions, right? So it's not really our place to give people operational advice. But we did say a couple of months back, hey, if you're using some sort of enterprise file transfer appliance, get rid of it because this is going to keep happening and it's going to be bad. And and this led to some funny things happening, actually. Like we had someone, I won't name them, but like someone on Mastodon saying, your advice is ridiculous. You know, uh, so much of our business is uh, based on this sort of stuff and there are better controls that you can put around it and blah, 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 blah. 
to which I'm like, I think eventually my reply was like, well, sounds like you got it under control, mate. Like, good luck. <laughs> uh, but a couple of funny things happened in that in that whole exchange where Dave Vitale and Alex Stamos both appeared like apparitions into the thread to say, <laughs> Patrick is right. And then sort of melt away, uh, which was funny. I think the comment, I've got it here from, from Dave, which is uh, honestly, I don't think people should use this stuff. Uh, like it's true, you can build your whole business around SharePoint, but it's also true that any hacker on your network can connect to your SharePoint and destroy your whole company. Just because a uh, product category exists, uh, does not make it worth using. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's just interesting, right? Where I, th- I feel like we've been vindicated a little bit here. Uh, Dave also actually wrote up uh, uh, your comments into uh, his his newsletter. I'll just read from that here. Uh, he said, so one thing I have as lessons learned from the past 20 years is that security is not a proactive sport. In fact, we are all experts at running to where the ball was as opposed to where it is going. Like if you listen to Risky Biz this week, Patrick asks Metalstorm whether it's time to go out and replace all the old enterprise file sharing systems you have around proactively. And the answer from Adam, who's hacked into every org in Oceana for the past 20 years is, yeah, this is generating a huge return on investment for the ransomware crews so they're just going to keep doing it and being proactive might be a great idea but what he didn't say but clearly had in his head was but lol nobody is going to actually do that so good luck out there tombs <laughs> so anyway I, i've just been been ranting here but get rid of these things like I, I i can think of only a couple of times where we've given such concrete you know advice one of them was like i think it was last year where we're like get rid of your exchange and the other time was like it's time to get rid of your file transfer appliances dump them yeah no i can't i can't agree more and like dave certainly has a way with words like uh um, actually this morning while i was reading the news uh, and we were preparing for the show i went and looked up the like you know gartner magic quadrant list for managed file transfer appliances went looking through all of the other vendors that uh, have not yet been clopped and boy oh boy like there are some vendors with a long reputation for you know, not doing a great job of software engineering and security and patching and so on in that list. So this is just going to keep happening. You know, when you see like Tibco in there as a vendor selling someone a managed file transfer plan, like that's just shell town. It's going to be shell town. Um, so yeah, I, I'm hundred percent on board for getting rid of this whole category of product. And we understand that you might like the products. They might have all sorts of plugins and productivity applications that you use. We understand that. What we're saying is the cost of yeeting them into the sun is going to be worthwhile. Yes, yeah, certainly cheaper than incident responders, and you know they, they are expensive, and especially when it's all already gone because they're exploiting into zero day, you know, six months or whatever ahead of um, of the vendors getting in there with some patching. Like it's just going to be expensive at uh, mm. the other end too, and worse. And there are SaaS alternatives available out there, you know, that you can migrate to that will have some of those productivity features that you also crave so much. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And I mean, the SaaS vendors also have software assurance, you know, quality issues, but like there's just a big difference between someone whose core business it is to run your SaaS transfer platform getting owned versus some vendor that stopped caring about that whole product category 15 years ago. Yeah, and you would hope that the SaaS vendor would catch it like after 5% of their customers yes. have been had everything exfilled and maybe yeah. pull the plug and figure out what's yes, going exactly. on, yes. right? So yeah. you, you're yeah. just going to be in a better place. You know, you're going to be in a more defensible place uh, as well and just stop. 
Just stop and get rid of Exchange <laughs> as well. Still, if you <laughs> while you're at it, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. the only people who should be running Exchange are like those mega corps with huge teams who've customized it until it's barely recognizable. Basically, <laughs> that's who can run Exchange. If that doesn't yeah. describe you and you're running Exchange, please, for the love of God, uh, get rid of it. Sounds fair. Sounds fair to me. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. Sir. Now look, um, yeah. Speaking of uh, trash gateways, get owned uh, Barracuda. Uh, apparently someone was using an O'Day in Barracuda for the last eight months. Uh, it's patched now. It got patched, uh, I think, what, early May? Um, yes, but yeah, yeah, it turns out it's been, you know, people have been having party time uh, with that. And it's a, it's, a, it's a bug that you exploit by, what is it, like malformed tar files or something? Yeah, yeah, I think it's like backticks in tar file file names or something like that. Um, that's been, yeah, as you said, being used in the wild for quite some time. And once again, this is a security appliance that's there to do security processing on your email, which puts it in a trusted place in your network and on an embedded system without all of the controls you would have on a you know fully fledged operating system. It's just exactly the worst case of what the security industry is about, you mm. know, selling you an opaque black box that then just gets you wrecked. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I been, love some I of their mitigation advice, like rotate any applicable credentials connected to the ESG appliances, like any connected LDAP or AD. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like that, that plan of pivoting through domain joined security appliances to then go on with AD and, and great victory. Like that's a thing we have done in the wild and you know Well that's what a, ransomware crews are doing and, and like Chinese doing, APT crews are doing it right APTs, now with Fortinet yes. stuff. They get on there, they grab the service accounts and that's it, they're done. And I mean this Barracuda stuff actually like the the stuff it drops, like the bug is funny, but the post intrusion malware and stuff is not that bad. Like it has a you know slightly sophisticated air to it, you know, in terms of how the mm. comms works and the backdoors that it drops and you know the sort of like port knocking y stuff and pcappy stuff and like it smells it smells good. Yeah, yeah but I mean an, an, another issue with these sort of uh, border devices, right, is they're not running CrowdStrike. You know, you no, don't exactly, have visibility right. into yeah. these things. You know, so maybe you're going to catch something on the network. Maybe. Yeah, and that's exactly what I meant without all of the controls you would normally have on enterprise yeah. platforms because these are appliances that you can't mess with. So, yeah, it's a perfect hopping off point uh, yeah. for nation states. Now let's talk about some research out of Eclipsium uh, into gigabyte motherboards. Uh, look, this has been written up by various people as like gigabyte motherboards having a backdoor, right? Which I don't entirely agree with uh, the characterization there. I mean, you could use it as a backdoor, but I, I, I think... You know, incompetence is yes. is, is a more obvious <laughs> yes. explanation for for what's going on here. I mean, this is the sort of stuff like any low cost Taiwanese manufacturer of hardware. Like this is what it looks like, right? So basically, anyway, you you walk us through uh, what Eclipsium found in Gigabyte motherboards because it is uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, so essentially, there is an update mechanism uh, in Gigabyte's BIOS uh, which will connect out to the internet, download upgrades, and just kind of run them in the context of uh, of the EFI firmware. And we're talking like HTTP here, like not even cert. Uh, well, I, I think or, sometimes it's HTTPS, but it's badly, like it's poorly configured. I don't think yeah, it like, actually checks certs or anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like so HTTP or, you know, equivalent functionality for HTTPS. So essentially someone on the network between you and, you know, gigabyte.com.tw can, you know, push down malicious firmware updates to you, compromise systems and, and onwards to, to great victory, which like these days we might call it a backdoor, like, but the incompetence word, is much more fair, I think, in uh, in categorizing it because, like, you know, it's not that long ago that this type of um, 
you know, malicious man in the middle of upgrades uh, was, you know, so widespread. There were tools for doing it. Uh, Evil Grade is the one that, that comes to mind, but, you know, Metasploit and a bunch of the other, you know, attack frameworks had these types of things for this purpose because everything used to update like this with no verification, no validation, no, you know, search checking or cryptographic hashes or, or whatever else of the upgrade. So, you know, Gigabyte's just a little bit behind the times here uh, and perhaps not actually backdoored, uh, like no. the headline would say. You may well be backdoored, <laughs> but not necessarily by Gigabyte. Now, Brian Krebs has a couple of great stories up at mm. uh, krebsonsecurity.com this week. And, you know, this first one, it's just the sort of story that only Brian writes, really, which is these deep dives in and, and doxings of various players in the cybercrime ecosystem. And this time he's taking a look at uh, a guy called Megatraffer, who is who? Who, as he he describes it, ha- practically cornered the underground market for malware-focused code signing certificates since 2015, right? And he's got a big deep dive on this. Just mwah, chef's kiss, amazing stuff from Brian. Yeah, perfect, perfect Krebsing, the verb, um, and it's exactly what you'd expect, right? He goes through forum posts and goes through old domain registrations and data dumps, you know, pivots off the guy's password to find other accounts, you know, in the Russian world that uh, use the same password because hackers reuse passwords too, uh, and then from there, you know, finds other domain names and old forum posts and things where, you know, prior to OPSEC being a concern, and uh, once again, here we are, Mr. Konstantin E. Fetisov from Moscow uh, is in fact uh, mega traffer and has been selling certificates for a long time. Had a blog, had a live journal for a while uh, <laughs> as well. Like it's just, it's such classic Krebsing and such a good reminder about you know, OPSEC being a thing you need before you need it. Uh, and in this case, you know, 15 years, 20 years before you need it. Uh, otherwise, you would just go and get Krebsed. Yeah, and there's a photo that pops up in all of this of a guy standing next to a newly, what looks to be a newly married uh, couple. And uh, yes, he, he looks like the sort of guy. Yeah, the third yes, person so in the does. photo just like absolutely looks like the sort of guy who lives in forums selling stolen certificates. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. And even like Krebs's comments are normally, you know, pretty terrible. Um, and and I, I feel for Brian having to moderate them. Uh, but someone did at least say, all of these millions, but still can't get a decent pair of shoes for his sister's wedding. And they are truly, truly awful, awful shoes. And uh, <laughs> yes, we will include a link to the uh, to the image in, um, in this week's show notes. Um, and he's got another one up here about uh, a campaign... <laughs> targeting uh, Discord admins. So admins of Discord channels that are like focused on cryptocurrency and stuff and they're sending them like, someone's sending them like fake, like JavaScript bookmarks or something that are like owning them and then they're, you know, doing crypto scams on the Discord community. It's, it's, actually, it's actually a pretty, uh, it's a pretty funny scam, like technically interesting in the sense that like, I, I don't, my hat is off to whoever decided to put this one together because social engineering someone to drag and drop something into their Chrome bookmarks bar that then has JavaScript that runs in the context of, you know, uh, another site or whatever uh, to compromise your Discord creds and then logging in, locking the people out of their own Discords and then saying, hey, we're going to drop some new tokens, get your free money, you know, free internet clown money right here. Um, like, it's a pretty good attempt. I don't know that they made a heap of money out of it, but, uh, you know, they, they gave it a solid shot. Uh, and, you know, moral of the story is don't drag random things into your bookmarks bar because <laughs> it runs in a different context. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I'm, you know, I'm not even mad about this one. Not going to lie, I'm not even mad. 
Uh, it's, yeah. it's basically your outtake. Well, and again, you know, our running gag is that, you know, cryptocurrency theft is a victimless crime, right? So, <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. There is that. <laughs> now, let's have a talk mm. about the sad state of Google's Android and Chrome extension stores, like the Play Store and the Chrome extension store. Um, Dan Gooden has a write-up on this for Ars Technica, but I got to give a, a hat tip to Catalan, our, our very own colleague, Catalan Kimpanu, who's been covering this um, in in great detail in the Risky Business News newsletter uh, and and the associated podcast. Um, there's just there's just been so much bad stuff turning up in the Play Store and in the the Google Extension Store lately. Like what seems to be happening is some researcher will find some bad stuff, do a blog post on it, and then other researchers grab a couple of indicators from it, and then they find even more stuff and. There's just like this whole shadow ecosystem of like adware apps and malicious stuff that is sneaking into the stores and it it is no bueno. Yeah, it is not. And I think um, like in this case, the researchers from, I think it was Dr. Webb, were looking at a piece of malicious um, code in the Google Play Store or in the Chrome uh, extension store, sorry, and uh, pivoted on like there was an SDK that uh, some of these extensions were using and that SDK turned out to be backdoored and, and had, you know, crime in it. Uh, and then from there they identified, you know, hundreds of others. And that's a story that we have seen how many times over the years with uh, the Chrome extension store and the, and the Play Store of, you know, code popping up in already kind of shady things. You know, we're talking like video scrapers for YouTube or things that are for taking mm. ads out of stuff or, you know, things that users already have low expectations of, but, you know, in some cases like appear to fail when you install them and they have, oh, just hit, hit a button to uninstall. But at that point, you know, you've kind of already got your browser owned or your, your phone owned. Um, so, you know, Google tried to pioneer the automated analysis and automated curation of those stores and it just has not been effective versus having a human in the loop um, it doesn't mean it can't can... be effective i mean i'm guessing a lot of the stuff that apple does is automated as well oh, yes, but, you know yes, you've yes. just got to put enough work and attention into it to make it work properly and it's there's too much stuff slipping through at the moment we've seen other major problems for google uh, over the last you know six to twelve months including like every time you search for a bit of enterprise software you get sponsored results which are links to malware Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand that's improving, but it's still a problem. And now you've got these issues with the trust in this. Like someone is not allocating the correct resources at Google to take care of some of these problems, which over a long enough timeline, if they don't get addressed, these are the sorts of little problems now that tend to snowball and turn into big problems. You know, I mean, think about what happened to Microsoft, right, in the 90s. Uh, you know, eventually they had to sign their trustworthy computing memo yes. because yeah. because it was just it was turning into an existential threat. I mean, they did turn it around. Um, they actually managed to turn it around. So now they just suck, uh, but they're not going to you know not <laughs> completely implode. Yeah, it's not existential <laughs> anymore. But you know, I don't know. I just think, especially when you've got all of this looming competition from large language models as a replacement for like Google Search. Uh, you know, this is this is danger, danger, danger for Google, don't you think? Yeah, like I mean, you know, the end users trust in Google as a provider has been eroded by a bunch of aspects, right? The you know constant changing of their mind about messaging products or their back and forth on you know how to make the extension store safe and and trying to come up with a, a model that actually works for that. Plus all of the other you know kind of say, search result quality being variable, like. As we get into the AI future, you know, trust in your platforms is going to be real important. And I don't know that Google has done a great job of that over the last, you know, five, ten years. 
and this does seem like the wrong place to skimp. I mean, even just the concept of browser extensions overall gives me the willies, as you well know, right? I'm a no, no one puts things in my kernel, and in this case, the browser is my kernel, so, you know, no extensions for me. Uh, but like, they just got to do better than, than they have been doing, and the, you know, the, the ongoing whack-a-mole that they do taken out you know, extensions here and there, but we're still talking millions of, you know, hundreds of millions in some cases um, of users affected by this stuff. And it's just not, yeah, it's not good for them. No, it's, it's not good. And, and it's, and it's, I think it's especially frustrating given the quality of the security engineering that comes out of Google, which is some of the best in the world, right? So like they're getting some of these amazingly challenging fundamentals bang on target, right? Like in a way that is truly impressive. And then they go and up the, the the app stores like yeah what? i know yeah it's, it is it is aggravating right because they do so much good work um yeah and, you know the, the way that they pushed hardware security tokens and you know the zero trust architectures and like there's just a bunch of good stuff oh pass but, keys i just learned by editing uh catalan's uh, uh news podcast script this morning that uh pass keys are going to be available for google workspace like pretty much now so or in, a, in a couple of days so yes uh, we will be able to use pass keys for our Google Workspace accounts. Woohoo! Excellent. Yeah, so, so much good work. And as you say, so many smart people doing amazing stuff, but balancing, you know, interesting, super interesting, difficult security engineering versus, you know, kind of consumer grade problems of the app stores and the extension stores. Like, yeah, they're not, they're not the glamorous problems, but they are super important. Yeah. Now, CyberScoop has an interesting post up, Adam, uh, from Francesca Lockhart, who leads the Applied Cybersecurity Community Clinic at the University of Texas at uh, Austin. And yeah, the post is about these university cybersecurity clinics, which have popped up at uh, yeah, UT Austin, MIT, the University of Georgia, UC Berkeley. Uh, and the idea is to get uh, you know students involved in helping community orgs uh, uh, protect themselves against things, protect themselves against things like ransomware and also respond to it. I think this is actually, like we don't often cover these sorts of initiatives, um, like government initiatives to spend, you know, $5 million training people or something. Uh, but but this seems like a really good idea and I hope it uh, goes somewhere. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are very, very many smart students who, you know, who are filled with a desire to go out and work and, and learn and, and better themselves and better their communities uh, and, you know, leveraging that where it has turned out that we need it, you know, supporting community orgs or local governments. Um, like, it's a good match um, and also great real-world experience for, for students. And, you know, when you look at some of the programs, especially in cyber, that do get government funding in tertiary, a lot of them are real dumb. Uh, and so it's really refreshing to see something that like looks like it would be legit good for everybody involved and not yes. just a you know one particular professor's you know pet thing getting a bunch of funding which we know is going to go nowhere uh, like we've seen in the cloud space or wherever else um so yeah i'm i'm here for this this sounds great i mean i would have done this when i was at uni I think it's a great idea to tap into some of those, you know, some of those undergrad skills, right? Because there are very skilled undergrads out there. Uh, just a couple of quick items to finish up with this week, Adam, and the Atomic Online like crypto wallet. Uh, there's there's reports that a bunch of those wallets are getting compromised. Complete mystery as to how that's happening, but like you know, tens of millions of dollars are going missing, which is um, always 
fun, I guess. Unless yeah, you're well, one of the people getting their money stolen. Well, exactly. And this is like a multi-currency service thingy. And yeah, I think they said like only 1% of our monthly active users have been affected. It's like, can you imagine if a bank put out a press release that only 1% of our customers have had their bank accounts looted? Yeah, uh, well, according, know, to, according to Catalan's coverage, like that 1%, there's 35 million so far in stolen <laughs> funds and counting. And I think one wallet... Uh, one wallet was worth like several million dollars. So yeah, here it is. The largest theft was 2.8 million. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, now if that was in the banking world, then the regulator would be, uh, you know, banging down the door at uh, the bank office uh, to go sort that out. So. Yeah, I love that. Our customers' money's going and we don't know why. Uh, good luck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> terribly sorry. <laughs> oh, man. And uh, look, uh, another story that's broken uh, over the last couple of days is a Russian prosecutor has been arrested for taking a bribe uh, from the, what is it, Infraud Group. Uh, they were arrested and charged, but after after the bribe was paid... Like none of their assets got seized and they walked away with suspended sentences. And now this guy's been arrested for taking a $24 million uh, bribe. And I believe the wallet keys for those Bitcoin addresses was in a folder on his computer that was labeled pension. <laughs> well, it's nice that he's thinking about his future. Um, but this was the guy who was what, like... Uh head of the investigative authority in I Russia. Don't think, so I don't think he was the head. He might have been a regional head or whatever. Catalan's yeah. got more details in, in this week's newsletter, but he was certainly, he certainly took money to spring these guys, right? And now yes. he's in all sorts of shit. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess he's not going to need that pension money uh, in, the, in the gulag if he ends up there, but maybe he can bribe his way, you know, bribe the next guy and this is just the circle of life. Yeah, uh, in, maybe. In you know, split, split the bribe with the prosecutor prosecuting him. Yeah, exactly right. And it was like a thousand bitcoins, which in 2018, like it's going to be worth quite a bit. Yeah, now, it was 24, 24 million. Yeah. Yeah, but they were like, you know, if he's got it, uh, some of it in bitcoin, maybe it's gone up since then. Like maybe he can afford another $24 million bribe. Since 2018? Let's have a look. It's a thousand 2018 bitcoins by now. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, he's in the money. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he could probably afford to bribe his way all the way up the food chain at this point in time. Yeah, wow. If he's still got any left. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I lose track of which of when Bitcoin was booming or not. I know, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, there you go. At some point, the roller coaster averages out. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually it for the week's news. Uh, thanks so much for joining me as always, and uh, we'll do it all again next week. Thanks, mate. Yeah, thanks, Pat. I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Marco Slaviero of Thinkst Canary. He is the CTO over there. And if you don't know Thinkst, they of course make canaries, which are devices you can put on your network that mimic other devices. So if someone interacts with them, you know you have an attacker on your network or at the very least someone doing something they shouldn't be doing. Uh, so they're kind of like a honeypot, but you deploy them internally and uh, they're not there to capture exploits, just to act as uh, like a detection apparatus. Uh, and a very high quality one at that and they are low cost they're effective and uh yes solid indoors basically for the old thinkst canaries uh, but marco joined me to talk through a couple of items in the latest thinkscapes report uh, it's a publication that thinkst puts out once a quarter that wraps a lot of the latest research in infosec this is something that they used to do 
uh, things used to do before it even made the Canary product, right? It used to be a paid product. Um, and it went away for a long time, but they've brought it back over the last couple of years. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really good. So I've linked through to the latest edition in this week's show notes. But uh, yeah, Marco joined me to talk about a couple of Thinkscape's items, starting with uh, a bit of research on indirect prompt injection into large language models. So here's Marco. So I guess the, 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 the one starting point is just prompt injection for folks who are unaware of it is, in a sense, you're an attacker, you're directly interacting with an LLM, and you are forcing it to act in a way that it wasn't uh, uh, expecting to or, or the uh, runners of that LLM don't want it to act. And so you're directly making it uh, do things it shouldn't do. That's the prompt injection. Um, and what these folks have done is they, they've tried to consider a world in which LLMs are used as backends to other services, so like chatbots or that sort of thing, and where those LLMs will go out into the broader web and query other data sets. And, and what, what they're looking to do here is to place prompt injection attacks on these third-party resources so that when things like chatbots or uh, scrapers or, or um, these tools that are using the LLMs actually go out and query those third-party resources, uh, the, when they interact with the data that they discover, the, the prompt injection attacks that are placed on those third-party resources uh, will alter how the LLM responds to the original user. And so you're attacking the data that the LLM returns to the user via um, the things that it goes out and seeks on the broader web. Yeah, I mean, this is no, not really that different to, you know, triggering some sort of vulnerable crawler via a chatbot that goes and, you know, pulls a PDF and pops shell or whatever. But, you know, as this research points out, you know, large language models don't actually distinguish between code and language, right? Which is yeah. a hell of a thing to wrap your head around. Um, and, and that's how you get it to do these wonderful things. And it's like, like that idea of uh, mixing code and language or, or, or data and code is literally the root of so many memory corruption vulnerabilities like that as a as a class of things is mm. is not uh, unknown to us but it's it's a very different modality uh, which i think is the word they also used in that paper so so yeah like that the the control plane the data plane it's the same thing they are not separated we haven't seemed to have learned that lesson um, and we're paying for it uh, just with a different kind of uh, surface and I guess the reason it being an indirect prompt injection is interesting is because you can probably build some sort of control around the part of these things that interacts with the user, right? But if you can go get it to read read the right website, um, you know, then then it's a win. So there was this story recently in Wired actually about how a group of people, or it was one person really, who was sad that Microsoft killed uh, killed off one of its unhinged like legacy chatbots, which was named Sydney. Uh, and so they created, this was a story by uh, Matt Burgess at Wired. Um, and so they created a prompt that would make uh, Bing, like the Bing LLM, actually behave like Sydney and then embedded it on a t in a tiny font, you know, with the, the color matching the background on a website and then, you know, could actually get Bing to go and view this thing. And then it would start acting like Sydney and telling everyone that how much it loved them and, you know, all, all of that weird stuff, right? So we've actually seen people doing, I mean, but that's pretty harmless. You can't imagine that there would be some malicious uses for this down the line, right? Yeah. So, so in this particular paper that we highlight, um, they've sort of put together a taxonomy of uh, what they see as potential kinds of attacks. And it includes things like fraud or um, ad SEO 
or, or uh, disinformation or even uh, automated defamation. So they've been doing some of that thinking as well in terms of the potential uh, of the attacks. But there have been, as you point out, examples of it uh, happening right now. So um, there was uh, obviously a lot more stuff in Thinkscapes because it's that kind of paper. Uh, there was another thing that you pulled out uh, that you found particularly interesting, and I, I agree with you. It's something that we've discussed on the show previously uh, with Proofpoint, actually. But it's this idea that a small proportion of your users actually introduce the majority of risk, right? So these might be people who are getting attacked a lot, uh, but also people who are a bit click happy uh, or people whose job it is to just open a lot of files and whatnot. And, 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 you know, this is still the case and this has been borne out in some research by, I can't remember the name of the company that did the research. So, so Simon Chet did the research and um, they basically, they, like it's sort of 300,000, uh, it's a study of about 300,000 uh, end users. Um, and they had a, a few uh, interesting takeaways. Um, but, but the, like that root idea of, uh, your risk is it sort of disproportionately, disproportionately sits with a handful of users or a smaller proportion of the users. It, it seems to be held out across uh, a, a few different companies now who release these sort of metrics. Um, the, the one thing they point out is that customer success tends to be the highest risk area inside an organization, as an example. Um, and they sort of have some ideas on why that might be. But yeah, they're, they're sort of slicing. Well, what, 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 I'm, I'm curious, like what, what are the reasons why that would be the area that is most impacted? Is it because you're dealing with an organization whose job it is to be eager to please? Because I'd imagine that would be part of it, right? It's going to be that. And they're very public facing, like they're the ones receiving emails. You know, they're sort of contrasted with like the product group in a, in a company in which the product team or, or group probably isn't used to dealing with outsiders via email. Um, and mm. the, the CS folks are. And so they're getting emails with links in them that are just taking them to, to sites. And, and as you say, that like they're eager to please. But it's also their default interface uh, is uh, is email. Like I, I know, you know, if I sort of add a little bit of uh, internal uh, things stuff here, our CS team are the ones that kind of keep me up at night in terms of they're the ones who, who receive lots of emails. Our engineers don't tend to receive emails and we can basically tell them to ignore emails. But uh, our customer success and support teams, they live in their mailboxes. Um, and so it's not that mm. surprising to me that um, they're the ones, the, the biggest source of uh, malicious clinks, uh, malicious uh, clicking of links. The, the one other uh, somewhat humorous, given where I am in our organization take uh, that Cyanshare had is that uh, managers seemed generally more likely to do uh, inse- or have exhibit insecure behavior than uh, those in non-managerial roles. So, um, yes, take that one. Look, another thing Another thing that we're going to talk about here is uh, you obviously went off and did RSA, you know, a month or two ago, but you had an interesting interaction with a customer that detected a breach with a canary. I think the thing that makes this one interesting is that they're actually a company that makes intrusion prevention systems. So the thing we didn't expect about uh, as a benefit of attending and exhibiting at conferences like RSAC is that people are prepared to have conversations with you that they wouldn't have committed to uh, in an email, but uh, like in an in-person chat, they're happy to share details. And uh, yeah, so someone from from uh, a well-known intrusion prevention uh, vendor came up to us and uh, basically had, had a chat and it, it turned out, yes, they detected an intrusion through the canaries that hadn't been picked up through the actual intrusion software that they 
sell. Um, and and like, I mean, I'll position this carefully. Like, I don't think we're a replacement or a competitor to intrusion prevention. Like, I think we have different no. roles. But but like, it is. No, and I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to bring this up as a ha ha ha. Right? Mm. Like, they're a bunch of idiots because. You know, okay, you look at this recent thing with Vault Typhoon, right? Um, which was all living off the land. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to catch that with an IPS, right? So, yeah, you're going to need something like a canary and you're going to need, you know, account monitoring and all sorts of stuff to catch some of these attackers, right? But it is, it is still cool, isn't it? When you get to say, we actually caught an attacker on the network of a company that makes intrusion prevention systems. It, it, it's a fun You get story. bragging rights for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I like it. Uh, I, I, think it, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, look, we've, we've been doing this stuff for uh, eight years. Like recently we had, it's sort of been eight years since we first actually shipped uh, anything Canary. Um, and like most of most of those year one customers are still with us. Like like it's pretty rare for that thing. Um, we're, you know, we, we see a long road ahead of us for, for things we still want to do with Canary. And yeah, this sort of story coming out of RSAC is just like it's a, a fun one. And it's, an, it's a nice one to chat well, in the office. Yeah, I mean they're enduring. They're an enduring sort of control, right? I mean, this is another reason why I like allow listing is because it's an enduring control that you can you can just sort of improve the way that you use it. It's not a R and D like arms race type of control, right? I, I can't agree more strongly. <laughs> like the, the, yeah. the thing here is, it's that you know, as you say, like an enduring control. Our typical deployment for customers take a canary, throw it down in the default state. And then just don't think about it. like you've not assigned yeah. anyone to manage it. We take care of the updates. You don't think about it, and you get that alert uh, uh, when the breach happens. So, so you're not there trying to play spy versus spy games, or you know having to keep uh, ratcheting it up as as attackers change their actions. Attackers are still going to hit stuff on open file shares. They're still going to try default creds on services. Like these are yes, things that exactly, they do, right? Like that, and that's you know. That is unlikely to change. Let's put it that way. Now, just quickly before you go, Marco, uh, you've got an upcoming release of Canary. You are, you know, adding new profiles to them as you often do, but you've also got uh, like tail scale support. Tell us about that. So, so our upcoming, re- the internal uh, release name is Radio Renoster. Um So apologies to my Afrikaans colleagues uh, where I butchered that, but the uh, tail scale is sort of a headline feature for us. So the, the, the short version there is, um, our customers, if they have tail scale uh, networks within their Canary console, they basically uh, give us an authorization key to let us join their tail net, and then a Canary will just pop up on your tail net. So, so the the sort of uh, all, all the requirement is from the customer is they give us permission to join that tail net, and we handle everything else for them. And so they don't have to run the birds or anything like that. They can get Canaries popping up on the tail net. Um, and then there's, you know, there's other features coming out in this release, multiple file shares, hidden file shares, as you say, a bunch of new personalities. Um, and uh, and we did include in this one, although we don't uh, almost ever make any mention of uh, ML or AI or anything, we did try to squeeze in chat GPT. Yeah, you sort of broke, you've broken your own rules with this one by actually using a uh, AI. You've got to change all your marketing now, Marco, and, and you're an AI company now. We're not AI powered. Uh, no, so so what we'd actually use ChatGPT here for was to uh, basically help us generate uh, industry-specific file shares. And so, like, if you're in the telecoms industry, you know, we can now give you a file share that 
has is full of files that look like they're from the telco industry. Exactly. Yeah, so there was a, there was actually a company in Australia that was doing this some years ago, right? So yep. this was more, you know, kind of provided as a service where they would go in and, and kind of do this for you. And they were using very, very basic ML to do this to just, you know, seed content everywhere that kind of looked juicy. Yep. But I guess now it's easier with a large language model because you can just prompt it and say, design a document that looks like it's full of juicy information and off it goes. Yeah, and so uh, like it's like we did it sort of like we're not doing it uh, in real time. Uh, we've generated a bunch of them and, and we sort of cycle them. But yes, yeah, so, so AI powered asterisk, I guess. Um, AI, yeah, Thinkst, the AI security company. Oh uh, no, we're not going it's there. Funny, I can I can feel Haroon groaning hearing that. No, uh, we're not going funny. there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to get a shot at this. <laughs> and uh, you've, also, you've also introduced a new profile, which is for uh, SolarWinds gear, right? Which uh, would be probably one that you want to have. Yeah, there's a bunch of new profiles. I just mentioned the SolarWinds one here. But at, like every release comes with new personalities and profiles. Um, check it out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Marco Slaviero, thank you so much for joining me uh, to, to walk through all of that. Uh, it's always great to see you, man. Cheers. Thanks very much, Matt. That was Marco Slaviero there from Thinkst. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Thinkst uh, for sponsoring this week's show. Find them at canary.tools. And that's it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Seriously Risky Business with uh, myself and Tom Uren in the Risky Business News RSS feed. Uh, But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 